Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Both Jesus and his cousin John summarized their entire preaching ministry with that one sentence. But what this phrase means isn't always commonly known. Dallas Willard tells a story about his growing up years that sheds a little bit of light. He remembers when he, he remembered, he's now with Jesus, so I guess he does remember anyways. He remembered that when he was a boy, these crews came into his town and then he lived down this long dirt road outside of town and they brought these poles and they brought these cables and they told everybody, we have electricity. In order to convince his grandparents the worth of these, you know, newfangled contraptions that were being brought into their life, they needed to hear a sermon that began something along the lines of, Repent! For electricity is at hand. That sounds silly to us. But likewise, Jesus' message, promising power for a changed life, also promised the reign of the Almighty God of the universe that would be available right at hand, ready to be grasped by any who by faith would stick out their hand and take it. The kingdom of heaven is not a place. It is the power, the reign, the active working of God in the lives of those who trust Him. The kingdom of God is where what God wants done gets done. And just as electricity was made available to rural Tennessee in the 1930s, the power of God is available to you right now, wherever and whenever you are. Now, in the Burtnett Standard Version of Matthew 4.17, yes, that's the BSV, it's translated there, Turn away from your sins and turn to God. For the reign of God is available to everyone, everywhere. Now, in an important sense, the Sermon on the Mount describes the person who in fact turns away from their sins and turns toward God and then lives by this newly available power that's available to the one who is intimately related to God. Dallas Willard himself wrote, The Sermon on the Mount is a concise statement of Jesus' teachings on how to actually live in the reality of God's present kingdom available to us from the very space around us. He's meaning that it's here, it's at your fingertips, available now. Now, we will accept this as accurate and we'll learn tonight to live the best life now, trusting God's immediately available power. Tonight, in fact, I want to water ski through the Sermon on the Mount. I'm going to go roughly passage by passage, but you'll see some of them will be lightly touched, lighter touched than others. But I want us to see that in it, Jesus seeks to describe a life that is lived with God's power made available and answer two profound questions. 
Who is the good person and what is the good life? The good person is the one who has repented and thus lives by God's immediately available power. This person has the kind of goodness that is found in God himself. This person has a family resemblance, so to speak, to their Almighty Father. And the good life is that life which is lived by the good person so described. They live according to what is genuinely in their interest rather than what the television tells you is in your interest. They have entered a life of well-being. may not be a perfect life. In fact, none of us have that. But it is one in which they flourish. From one perspective, there are no more important questions than these two. In fact, every single philosopher, religious guru, prophet, sage, up until a remarkably very short time ago in modern history, has sought to answer these two questions. Now philosophers just kind of whistle nervously in the dark. But obviously, these different religious gurus have given different answers, and some of their answers were more complete than others, but every one of them, from Confucius to Aristotle, from Buddha to Aquinas, the answers about who is a good person and what is a good life have been remarkably similar. Now, I want tonight to look at the very best answer given, and that is Jesus' answer on who was the good person and what was a good life in the Sermon on the Mount. And as we go through the sermon, we're going to conclude our series tonight on what principles ought Christians to have to determine how they're going to invest their leisure time, their time that's not spent earning a dollar, doing chores, or sleeping. And then, this will also help us kick off, because as soon as we're done with Donna's Bon Voyage party, we're going to get back to the Sermon on the Mount and pick up in the Beatitudes where we left off a couple of months ago. It's been a while. But again, tonight we'll learn to live the best life now, trusting God's immediately, right next to you, available power. And in Matthew chapter 5, we'll see perfection in living. That's your first blank. The Beatitudes, you'll remember me saying months ago now, teach us that God's grace is available to any who wants it. God's grace is available to you. Now, you will not find a more counter-cultural list of characteristics anywhere. Maybe God did that on purpose. Perhaps God meant for you to really want his blessing if you were going to get it. I don't know. Maybe he would ask you, you know, go through a narrow gate, walk down a hard road. Jesus' blessings here are so countercultural that you must be the kind of person who is willing to rejoice at persecution for the sake of Christ. He says in verse 12, Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You, me, 
we right now can be the recipient of God's favor wherever we are. This is the glory of Jesus' blessings. You can live the good life now because you align yourself where God pours out His blessings on His children. Now, Jesus continues, and He's saying that such a life lived is going to be noticeable. Kind of like taking a pound of salt and mixing it with two pounds of ground beef. You're going to taste that salt. And that's why He says, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. You are the person who is beginning to live this experience of God's blessing And you can't live that way without changing the culture around you. The culture at at your work, in your home, at the tennis courts while you're playing. The point is summed up at the end of this part of the passage where Jesus says, in the same way, let your light shine before others. Why? So that they may see your good works. They can see the good that Christ put in you living out in the life that you live. And then they will give glory to your fathers who is in heaven. Live that best life now. And you do that by trusting in the power that God has made available to you right here. Now, in chapter 5, verse 17, Jesus makes a switch. He, this is his first real shift in the sermon. He's been describing the good life, and now he gives an interlude, so to speak, into the law. He asks the question, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law. Now, why would Jesus say that? Have you ever run into that verse and thought, Where did he get that? Well, obviously, it's because it was possible to construe from what he said that the law, in fact, would not remain. Indeed, Matthew chapter 5 addresses that question. Is the law enough? And I think the answer that we find is obviously not. Well, what's necessary? If the law isn't enough, what do we need to add to it? Amazingly enough, right at the beginning of giving the law, this question was answered in Deuteronomy 10, 12 and 13. Moses writes, And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all His ways, to love Him, to serve the Lord with all your heart and with all your soul? All of these things. And then to keep the commandments and the statutes of the Lord, which I am commanding you today for your own good. Right at the top, Moses, while he's giving the law in Deuteronomy, explains that God is looking for something deeper than simple obedience. He is looking for hearts that fear and love and serve Him. Now the law ensures outward behavior. But regeneration, new birth, the Spirit coming into His children today ensures an inward change. But still, I might be willing to say that I'm overstepping my bounds by saying this. If we didn't have a simple, concise statement that says that there is something more behind the law. And I find it in Romans chapter 3, verses 28-31. through 
Paul writes, For we hold that one is justified. He's declared righteous. He is, has a right relationship with him spoken into existence. We hold that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, God is the God of Gentiles also. Can I get an amen for that? All of us goyim in here? Since God is one who will justify the circumcised, those who live by the law, by faith, and the uncircumcised through faith. God justifies those who pursue the law in the Old Testament, and he justifies those in the New Testament through that same faith. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? Paul asked the same question as Jesus. Hey, do we just get rid of the law? By no means, he says. On the contrary, we uphold the law. We hold it in its proper place. So what do we have? Faith, trust, confidence. And what, may I ask, demonstrates this confidence? A changed life. A good life lived by a good person is one that is lived for God's blessing. One that believes that God exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. Now, this brings me to what is known as virtue ethics. This is the secular term that's batted around in the universities that describes the idea of what Jesus is talking about in the Sermon on the Mount. And in this idea, of course I'm giving the Christian version of it, not the non-Christian version. But in this idea, ethical decisions are best made by ethical or virtuous or, as we would say, Christian, Bible-believing, Christ-honoring people. The people who have, as we said earlier, turned away from their sins, turned toward God, for the reign of God is available to everyone, everywhere. Now, these are virtue ethics because these ethical decisions, such as how we invest our leisure time, as we've been talking about these six weeks, are based on virtues. And what are virtues? Virtues are habits of thought and action that come from a redeemed heart. Now again, I'm giving the Christian version of this as opposed to the non-Christian. But the law is important. Again, we're not abolishing the law. Don't misunderstand me. Without the law, we would have no content for what these virtues look like that Christians are going to have. The person who trusts Jesus. So let me give you an example of a moral decision that must be made apart, to use Jesus' term, from the law by a virtuous person. If the Nazis show up at your door and demand that you show them the Jews that are hidden in your basement, you have a decision to make. If I tell the truth, which is what the law demands, then they're going to die. In fact, I might die also, right? In this particular case, the law also states that we are to save innocent lives. So on the one hand, the law says, do not tell a lie. 
On the other hand, the law says, save innocent lives. Now, in the what I'm describing as virtue ethics, you are still under the obligation to tell the truth. But the greater law, in this case, the one that says you must save a life, is the one that prevails. If you're interested, I didn't want to take a lot of time, but there's a whole lot more that can be said there. Come and talk to me, because that's a fun discussion. But, I don't want to have it right now. But, the point is that the law wasn't enough. It wasn't enough to decide between these two ethical norms, uh, things that we needed to obey. And if you think I'm just making something up, examples of exactly this are found in the Bible, where the Hebrew midwives lied to Pharaoh, where Rahab hid Joshua's spies. The point is, is that something else needs to be added to the law. In Matthew chapter 5, in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus expresses what this extra is. Remember that he says in verse 20, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. That which is beyond the law is a righteousness deeper than the law. One that reflects a heart that is fundamentally changed. That God makes into a good heart. And is changed by God's grace and by conscious, persistent effort over years of confidence in God's promises for you in Christ. The righteousness of the Pharisees was quote-unquote perfect obedience to the law. But the righteousness of God, as Paul calls it in Romans, is beyond that which can be mustered by any human being. The righteousness, this righteousness, must be credited by the Lord and then worked out by the Holy Spirit as you and I make decisions on a daily basis. It is then the law that is internalized into our heart and then lived out freely, joyfully, and consistently in the life that has been redeemed. That is the life that Jesus commands us to have when he says, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now the Greek word here translated perfect is elsewhere translated mature and complete. You and I can live this perfect life by the power of the Holy Spirit when you prepare yourself, for example, to maturely handle conflict. James tells us this. He says, For we all stumble in many ways, and if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect, the same word, mature or complete man, able also to bridle his whole body. That is one way that you and I can live the best life now. Not 20 years from now. Not when we get to the new kingdom. Not when we get to the eternal state. But we can live this now by trusting God's immediately available power. Now, such perfection in using our tongues uh, makes this life kind of get some shoe leather. But then Jesus 
changes gears again in chapter 6. Now he's, he's making his switch back and he's, he's getting back off his law and back into this good life versus good, and good person. And he begins by telling us that there is a life worth rewarding. And this life worth rewarding is at first described as living for an audience of one. He says in verse 6-1, he says, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. That is the controlling verse for that first 18 verses. And the reason why we should not practice our righteousness in order to be seen by others is that if we do, the only reward we get is to be seen by them. Not much. So, giving money to help the less fortunate, praying, fasting, these are all presumed here to be normal daily activities that we engage in all the time. In fact, when Jesus says, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, he's making the point that our giving, praying, and fasting ought to be as automatic as driving our car. The good life then, is the life in which our attitudes and our actions reflect habitual, characteristic obedience to God's law. Another way of saying that same thing is that that life is virtuous. Now let's not lose sight of the fact that none of this takes place apart from grace and empowering from the Holy Spirit that is available to you right now when you are tempted to sin. That grace is available and you can take part in it. It is for you right now. And it is grace. And, by the way, It takes not only grace, but it takes time. Because if your and my bad habits and sin have developed over decades, you can't expect them to disappear overnight. Man, I hate preaching to myself. But that that grace, that power from the Holy Spirit is how you and I can live the best life now immediately. Trusting God's immediately available power he continues and he talks about living for an eternal treasure because he says for where your treasure is there your heart is also the surest sign at least one of the absolute surest signs of a changed life is that our hope our treasures the things that we most long for are no longer the pitily dust that we can collect on earth but are things that are truly eternal. Because if our treasure, if we treasure things down here, our heart will be down here. If we treasure God and the rewards He gives in your hearts belong to Him. Think, think about this just for a second. How could God say to someone who truly found their treasure in Him, you're not invited in my heaven? If they said, God, I value by their life, I value more than anything, I want you, that's the perfect, that's the person who fits 
in heaven. That's the person who wants to be there. And hell, on the other hand, is the persons whose affections have been so continually on dirt and themselves that they can't desire to be in heaven. They can't bring themselves to want God's blessings because they've lived their whole lives wanting to get as far away from them as possible. That is a terrifying reality. But it's more than that. That's only a part of the picture. Not only do found souls and lost souls differ in their values and in where they put their affections, but where they put their affections, the, the, the things that they desire also turn out to be their master. Jesus says, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money, or God and fame, or God and comfort, or God and you fill in the blank. Then Jesus wraps up chapter 6 with an exhortation. Instead of chasing after vomit, dirt, things that won't last, live for the kingdom. Now, this is one of the first passages that I actually memorized. And I did it in the NIV, and it's been years, so I'm not even going to try to quote it. But throughout this part of the sermon, Jesus tells his disciples that they shouldn't worry. How many of us spend a considerable amount of time every day worrying? We don't want to admit, do we? Jesus says, you don't have to worry. Don't do it. Choose not to. Don't let my wife, by the way, know I'm saying this because she'll hold it against me. I love my bride. Jesus tells his disciples they shouldn't worry. They shouldn't be anxious. Instead, they should trust their master to provide all they need to glorify him. Boy, that sounds like the good life to me, doesn't it? Never having to worry again. Amen. And instead of worry, because you can't just say, okay, I'm not going to worry, but you have to put something in place of worry so that what you have is, is a net positive. Well, Man, Jesus is so great. He helps us out even there. He says, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. Now, how does all this relate to leisure time? Because we've been talking about how we invest those times of our day that we're not spending doing something we have to do. Notice, in none of these six sermons have I ever given a law on how to invest your leisure time. I haven't, for among many good reasons, is because that's not what God wants. I mean, we're spending last week and this week talking about how the law isn't enough. What is enough is a heart that is trained by grace through faith. A heart that seeks His reign, His power.
power, His righteousness given to us and then working through us in all of our attitudes and actions of life. A heart that is shaped by the commands that show us God's likes and dislikes, but one that is free to be trusted to go beyond, to go deeper than those rules and straight to the heart of God who loves us and who longs, who longs to please us with himself. I admit, I, I chase after all kinds of things, experiences, whatever, to get this sense of fulfillment. But God offers it to you. God offers it to me free of charge. You just have to be willing to reach out and take it. Live the best life now, trusting God's immediately available power. And when you keep hearing that in your head, remember, that's grace. Grace is God's immediately available power now that you have access to. Then when we get to Matthew chapter 7, the truth that holds it together as a literary unit is the idea of examination. So Jesus gave us the description of the perfect life and then he had this interlude talking about how the law relates to that. Then he spent considerable time showing us what this life looks like on the inside of the heart of the person who is following after him. And now he says, okay, we have to examine ourselves. The Christians are a people who live well because they submit to examination. Examination of their own hearts. Examination by those fellow travelers on the way and by the Holy Spirit Himself. So, the life well examined. The first in order and importance is to examine how we interact with those closest to us. And Jesus says, point blank, judge not that you not be judged. Now, having just preached on this passage, I will only remind us that Jesus' point is that we must not condemn. We must not belittle those around us who fall to some sort of temptation. Instead, if you remember just a couple of weeks ago, it's online if you want to listen to it, we need to train ourselves to discern, to think, to examine, rather than condemn. But that's not all. The examination of our heart continues as we look into how we relate to our provider. We must have the kind of heart that trusts God's blessings, that God's blessings will be granted, that answers will be given, and that opportunities will be shared. Verse 11, If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask Him? Because when you and I are living this good life out of the good person that the Holy Spirit enables us to be by that power that is readily available as close as our fingertips, then living by the golden rule will be as common as stones on the ground. It won't be reaching out for gold. It'll be right here with us. And we will be able to have eyes 
that see the gate, that narrow gate that the world rushes past. Because they, Jesus said, the gate is narrow, the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Oh my goodness, there's hardly a more true statement in all the world. Because the good life is cars. The good life is, is any kind of party that fits your fancy, any kind of hobby that you are attracted to. The good life is chasing after experiences and things and going here, there, and everywhere. But does that really satisfy? It's almost proverbial that we hear of movie stars or rock stars who end up killing themselves either figuratively or literally. Every year we hear about it. They have all that this world could give. But in the end it turns out to be nothing. The way gate is narrow and the way is hard. Not only will we see the true life, not only will we see the good life and and be the good person that God creates us to be through this power available to us, but we will recognize those who are charlatans, those who are in the religious business for their convenience or profit. Jesus says, thus you will recognize them by their fruits. But most important are two examinations that Jesus says everyone will face. And I want to read these passages in their entirety. Verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. See, the law is still there. We're not given a pass. We're shooting for more than the law not less. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Jesus warns those who hear his words but fail to listen to him. If you will not examine yourself now, you may find yourself afoul of the infinitely important judge. Not the judge on Fox News or CNN or whatever television shows you like. Because if you fail here, no matter how much you succeeded elsewhere, you will have failed altogether. You will have missed the good life. You will have missed being the good person. And therefore, you will have missed eternity with Jesus. And then Jesus once again puts our feet on solid ground. He says, everyone then who listens to these words of mine and does them will be like the wise man who built his house in the rock. Who, because he has internalized God's word, because he has relied on the Holy Spirit's power that's immediately available to him, because he or she has trusted in God's grace working through us, that person's house is built on the rock. And the rains fell and the floods came and the winds beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And notice, 
the same rain, the same floods, the same winds hit every single person, no matter where we are. And that house fell. And great was the fall of it. Total fall. My friends, the good life, as we understand it from God's word here in the Sermon on the Mount, is the one that is built on the foundation that cannot fail. That foundation obviously includes living by those laws that show us what pleases and what displeases God, but to use them appropriately, living by grace, by grace through faith. Um, And these laws show us this Lord and Savior. And that foundation itself is held together by the trust that we have in Christ who makes us be the good people who live by live the best life now, trusting God's immediately available power. Now, I just dodged a lot of major issues through the Sermon on the Mount. If you are interested, this is where we are going to be starting on January 6th. We're going to finish the Beatitudes, and then we'll go in, and hopefully I'll be able to make some more sense of this. But be there with us as we explore God's word and how you and I can live according to this available power. Let's pray. Lord Almighty, we do give you praise and we do give you thanks for loving us, for giving us your Holy Spirit so that we could live by grace through faith according to this power that's available to us right now, right where we are for our good, for your glory, and for the growth of your kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen.